So Romans 16 is a fascinating. It, it's, I think it's one of the more fascinating chapters in, in the New Testament. It is, a, it is at the end of Romans, and it's a long kind of list of people who Paul wants to say hey to. And, uh, and there's, but there's also some really interesting information in there as well. When I read, when I read Romans, and I, that, the list of the people, and he names, about 24 people are named. Uh, some of the people are named are actually families. Uh, you look at these, and, and some of them you've seen their name before once in a while, but one of a couple of the places, but they seem like inconsequential people. Like, oh, we don't know who they are. And yet, they had such a lasting impact on Paul's ministry that he includes them. Uh, in Scripture, and when I do that, I end up thinking, I'm like, what? These are people that had a profound impact on the kingdom of God. They had a profound impact on reaching people, of, of influencing people towards Jesus, of helping Paul. And it reminds me, hey, what, <laughs> I'm thinking this week when I'm reading this, what kind of impact am I having? You know, you read, you read these names, what kind of impact are you having on God's kingdom? What kind of impact are you having on people's lives? I mean, if someone was to, to write a letter uh, to our church to, to, to greet people, and, you know, and, and, and granted, these are people Paul knows, but I mean, some of the things that he says about them, and some of the things we find in other places in Scripture, what, what would they say about us, the impact, the influence we have? It's a profound thing to think about. What is fascinating about chapter 16 is how it begins with a woman named Phoebe. And we tend to just gloss over this. This is a nice woman. She's doing something for Paul. But when you understand this passage, you understand actually what it says in the Greek. It is a very fascinating few verses. I commend you to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess. Not sorry, it says servant. Servant slash deaconess slash minister of the church, which is at St. Tria. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Paul gives a command, and the command is to help Phoebe, who this is the only thing we know about her, but here's the thing. She is called a deaconess, diakonon, in the church. She is the only person in the entire scripture who is technically categorized as a deacon. I mean, I know that. The word deacon and the word minister come from the same Greek word, diakoneo, the verb, which means to serve or to minister or to help. In the Greek, language, it's a, it's a very broad term used for the purpose of coming alongside of someone and it being of, of help to them. It is used many times in the New Testament, primarily of serving or of service or of one who serves. It is used of a deacon technically only twice, once in the book of Philippians at the very beginning where Paul says, you know, talks about the, de- the deacons. And then uh, it's, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it talks about the office of deacon and the expectations requirement. The office of deacon being linked to the office of overseer, which is the office that I hold in the church. Everywhere else, except here, it's a general term, a verb, an adjective, a noun used to describe someone. 
Even in Acts chapter 6, the word is used, but only of service. The, the, the seven men in chapter 6, you know, we as Baptists especially like to say that those are the first deacons. They didn't say that in Scripture. We just, we just call them that. I don't call them that. If you've ever heard me talk about Acts chapter 6, I don't call those guys deacons. Those guys are people who are serving the Lord with different capacities. doesn't technically call them deacons. And so we oftentimes, I can't tell you how many dozens of times there are people say, well, these are the characteristics of deacons. No, those are the characteristics of people who serve, period. What is mentioned in chapter 6 should be the characterize all of us, the pastor, deacons, if there were elders, trustees, Sunday school teachers, people working on all of those. There's only three times the word's technically used. And so normally we come here and we come to Phoebe and, you know, and she was serving the Lord. She's a servant. We have the idea of, of a servant like a doulos. There's a word for servant, doulos, which means to, to, to serve, you know, to, and we are called that way to be a slave to the Lord. It's not, it's not the word used. And so you, we, we really, to be honest, we have two choices of what we do with Phoebe. Now remember, Paul is often accused of being anti-women, and here, the only time the word is technically used to describe one individual by name is Phoebe. So is she then a deacon, us, female deacon, like you find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which also, by the way, when it talks about deacons, then talks about the women, and we translate it to wives of the deacons, but it could be translated to women who serve in the capacity of deacons. And if we say no, we're uncomfortable with that, then we have to realize she's at the very least a minister of some sort. Someone who is technically involved in a specific because of ministry. Because this is what Paul says, I commend her to you. She is a minister, servant, deacon of the church at Centria. So she has an office. She is just not out ministering. She has an office at that church. Receive her. And then help her with whatever she wants. Because she's on a specific task. Paul says she's a leader. You give her aid. Now, our task always, when we come to Scripture, is to let Scripture say what it says. And to take it and deal with it. How many times do I tell you, if your theology doesn't agree with the Bible, don't change the Bible. Change your theology. So, I struggle with this. Uh, <laughs> people ask me sometimes, you know, you're going to ever have women deacons. And, and I'm saying, sure, we've got lots of women deacons. We've got lots of women who serve. So, I, I'm good with that. They mean the office of deacons. And the answer, ultimately, is that I won't ever do it. And the reason I don't ever do it is, is threefold. One, Scripture neither tells us not to or to do it. It doesn't ever tell us. To have women in that position. That's the same thing with overseer. My position is overseer, senior pastor, overseer, bishop, um, episcopos slash presbyteros. It doesn't tell us that. So there are no examples of one actually for sure. Even though this term is applied to her technically, we don't know for sure that it means that or simply minister. Both are technical terms. So since we're not told to do that, prescribed, I don't do it. Secondly, uh, in our in our world, and culture is bad. Is I don't know what what good would it do. I mean, I'm saying, why why would <laughs> why would I want to create that unnecessary problem <laughs> when there's no reason? What's it going to help me accomplish? We're not going to reach more people for Jesus that way, are we? No, it's not going to make a difference in that. It's not going to help us. There are two primary reasons 
in Baptist life, people go in that direction. Uh, and, and, and I, you know, whatever is fine. One is they don't have enough people, enough men to be deacons, so they go get women. Well, okay. And then second, to prove a point, they want to be, they feel like they need to make a point and be socially relevant, whatever. And, and I don't ever worry about being socially relevant and all that. My, my life isn't to go, you know, create points to prove like that. If it doesn't help us honor God or reach people, then I'm not really interested in it. And so that, that's part of it. And then the, the third thing is in way in the back of my Baptist mind and heart and soul. I'm just not comfortable doing that. That's just honestly. It's just something about me that's like, God, I don't think I could do that. Man, right or wrong, <laughs> that third one wears a lot, carries a lot of weight. Do you ever have those points in the back of your mind like, ah, I just don't think I'm going to do that today? I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't know why. Maybe it's because when I get to heaven, I don't want to face my Baptist mother and explain to her why I did that. I don't know. I have a grandfather in heaven who's a deacon. I don't want to explain to him why I did it. Why did you do that? I don't know, granddad, why I did it. But the truth of the matter is, this is what I find interesting in, in, in life. I don't ordain people much at all, period, I have found. I just don't. I don't know the purpose of it anymore. There's a legal aspect of it, but as bad as you can license people. So why, and I don't even ordain. So the main reason I ordain people now, in the case of ministers, it's because I know in their career, there's a lot of churches that would never look at them if they're not ordained. And so our, I ordain ministers primarily to give them credentials and credibility. I license them, you know, because I feel they're called. And if they're not called, we won't keep them around. So I don't even do that. So it's just a fascinating thing. So I'm left with this passage. And how do I, as a pastor, who understands it's a technical term, Deal with it. I ignore it and I skip right past it and I go to verse 3. <laughs> now, here's what I say I think it validates the fact that women are able to technically serve in positions of leadership in a church. We'll go over to Timothy, where Paul says, I don't allow women to teach. Men, and we, and we ignore the context of the problem that exists at Ephesus of controversy in Paul's solution is to keep the women who were helping be a part of the controversy from teaching and we skip over Romans 16 verse 1 and 10 which is foolish and so I would just simply say at the end of the day probably the position of overseer my position probably is best suited for men I think from a scriptural standpoint, that's probably accurate. Everything else. I think the Bible maybe leaves it up to churches to come to that conclusion on their own. Our church won't. We don't do that. Other churches might. Fascinating thing. I spent a lot of time, more than you may realize, struggling with these two verses to how do how do I make it work in the church that I pastor so I'm true to scripture which is all that matters all I do that's all that matters in verse 3 through 16 Paul deals with about 24 number of people I'm not going to go through all of them 
These are people that are in Rome for whatever reason. And there's, there's a lot of time, effort, and energy spent on understanding who these people are. Priscilla and Aquila, we know, that's, last year I preached a series about Priscilla and Aquila. When they were servants who had, who had been in Rome when uh, they were kicked out under Emperor Claudius. They left to go to Corinth. Paul met them in Corinth. He took them with them to Ephesus. They started a house church in Ephesus. Oftentimes, uh, Prisca, which is Priscilla, the woman is mentioned ahead of Aquila. And there's lots of controversy about, you know, are they in Rome or not? Uh, when, um, when Claudius died and the Jewish, and Jewish Christians were allowed to go back to Rome, they went back to Rome. That was their home. Uh, their workers to serve Paul. Uh, he mentions they risked their own next. And he gives thanks to all the churches of the Gentiles. They, in other words, they were valuable servants. Uh, here is the word servant. They were diakoniah, who served the Lord valiantly. Uh, they mentions others in there, um, in, in Pilatus in verse 8, beloved of the Lord, Urbanus, the guy who lives in the city in verse 9. There are numerous people in verse 11. He talks about Herodian, who is his kinsman, uh, the household of, of Narcissus, uh, most likely those are, those may not be individuals, those may be people who are descendants of, or connected to. Um, and so that kind of has that idea. Verse 13, Rufus, man, he's mentioned other, other places, he is probably, he may well be the son of, uh, of Saint Simeon who carried the cross of the Lord. Uh, and his mother and mine is a reference to uh, the value of his mother in Paul's life. Uh, he mentions people in verse 14 and 15. Verse 16, he says, greet uh, one another with a holy kiss. That was a common way of greeting. We don't do that today. I'm not going to greet him with a holy kiss. Don't come kiss me. There's germs and all that. I really don't even like shaking your hand. Uh, I do a lot of that. But shaking the hand or the side hug uh, is acceptable. The side hug. Don't do that hug. Don't do a full hug. That's not. That's that's a little too personal, and intimate. Uh, Joe likes to do that occasionally, but I, Barry and Barry, that's fine. Stay away from each other. And uh, side hugs are okay. Shaking hands are okay. How about this? Just be friendly. Just let that be who you are. I, I, I'm always amused by churches who have as their slogan, "The end of your search for a friendly church," because isn't. In reality, the only people who can tell if we're friendly are the outsiders who come to visit us. Aren't they the ones? We're all friendly to the people we like and know. I mean, you know, even mean people are friendly to other mean people sometimes, you know. But if, if our attitude is to be warm and hospitable and greet people, shouldn't that be what we do? By the way, let me just say this. We need more greeters on Sunday morning working out at the doors and out by the bike rack. You realize how many guests we have come? And when you, when you come to a church like ours, and you're not used to church, it's intimidating. And you come, and, it's, and, it's, and you walk up to this building, and, and you just have to walk. We need people out in the, by the bike rack welcoming folks, saying hey. We need people at the door saying hey. Now, we'd like for you to do that officially and sign up for worship an hour or serve an hour or go see Joe and do that. But even if you don't sign up officially... If you just want to stand out there and say hello to people, now be nice. Don't don't criticize the way they're dressed or something like that. But be nice. Do that. I mean, I was out there Sunday. I wasn't preaching, so I was out by the back rack greeting folks. You know, saying hey to people, getting to know folks. Be 
hospitable and friendly to people. Now, he, clo- and he begins his closing. Always when Paul writes these books, there are doctrinal issues to be concerned about. And so he says this in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, must keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn and turn away from them. Now, there is always the danger of the false teachers, the, the, the people who somehow are leading people astray. Now, we're, we're fortunate. You know, I, I've been fortunate in my ministry. I've never had to deal, to my knowledge, with false teachers. In, in any position, I've had some people that had crazy, wacky ideas. I had a lady come up to me in Laredo telling me that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. And then she sat down to explain that to me, and, and I just looked at her like, crazy. I think I even said the words, you're crazy. So I, I, I've never in my ministry ever dealt with that per se, but there is always, and I think part of it is when you're Baptist, and you're as conservative as we are, people with odd ideas doctrinally tend not to feel welcomed. In other words, they, they tend to have difficulty at graining ground. Um, but I know a lot of churches, and I've seen a lot of churches that have doctrinal issues. Doctrinal issues. And people who teach things that are contrary to Scripture. Now, it, it could be... It could be doctrine. It could be lifestyle, how you behave. It could be in how you deal with people. It could be multiple areas that fall into. It's not just pure doctrine. It's not like it's not just, for instance, denying the Trinity. It, it, it could be um, it, it could be in, in behavior, you know, that that would be that way, or, or just in in other other areas. Now, sometimes in, in Baptist life, churches get, get may get hung up on an issue. I know churches get hung up sometimes on the end things, the last the coming of Christ. And, and, and sometimes some people want to take a, a view here and some take a view there, and I get asked that from time to time, and that happens. Um, sometimes on creation, you know, I, I, I remember early, that drives me nuts thinking that. Day. Is that going to be there like that Sunday morning? I want to get used to that, right, Mike? Yeah, okay, okay, I'll get used to it. Good thing I'm not seven feet tall. I'll get used to it. Or if I don't, it doesn't matter, really, does it? <laughs> so, I like the stool. It's awesome. We ran out of money uh, to finish the project, so we just took a stool and put the mics on the stool. So if somebody, you know, like that. I'm just kidding. Huh? Temporary. <laughs> okay. We're going to fix that. Where was I? Oh, yeah. But, but. You know, so sometimes, you know, we'll get caught up in those things. And I've had, I remember people getting caught up in, when I was younger, in baptism. What about alien immersion? <laughs> Which I was, you know, I'm like, I don't think there are aliens, so I'm not worried about how we baptize them. So I'm not sure what that means. But alien immersion is do we take someone with a, who was baptized by immersion, but differently than us somehow, okay? Or, and I remember, you know, do we let Presbyterians, and Methodists and Lutherans take the Lord's Supper with us because in their Lord's Supper, they drink wine and because they have a slightly different view of what communion means. And, and so we sometimes go down that road. And I've, I've seen churches have unbelievable controversy in the old days over that. But primarily what Paul is saying is don't let people come 
and teach you things contrary to the word of God in any capacity. Don't put up with it. Deal with it. He says, turn away from them, in essence, so they don't turn you away from other people. He says, those people are slaves, not of the Lord our Christ, our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive hearts of the unsuspecting. In other words, most people that way are focusing on themselves. They, they become, they're doing it to have some new or novel idea that makes them look particularly smart. Or look like they have great insight. Uh, I, I've had people, even here, I've had people come up to me um, and, and start giving me their insight on, on something. And I'm like, that's not what that means. Well, but, but pastor, the word here can mean this, and the word here can mean that. And if you take it this way, and you take it that way, and then and I'm like, but it doesn't mean this, and it doesn't mean that, and you can't do it that way, and you're wrong to do that. So don't do that. Because you're just, well, you're not insightful, you're not clever, you're just wrong. Now here's the problem. Some people have an unbelievable ability to communicate. And because they have an unbelievable ability to communicate, they can communicate what is not true, whether in a large group or a small group or one-on-one, and lead people astray. Some people make things sound so enticing and so appealing that people get led astray. I can't believe it's been 40 years since Jim Jones in Guyana Town back in 1979. It just seems like the other day that all that happened. A lot of you are, are, are this is one time, Joe, you're too young to remember this because you weren't born yet uh, at all. But he had, an, Jim Jones had an unbelievable ability to communicate. And people fell for it. David Koresh, I, about a year ago I saw a special on him, a several part special, I did some reading he had these just crazy ideas. He could communicate in ways that were amazing. And people bought into that. And our task is to not let smooth, slick-talking people confuse people with what they teach. And so the danger of that is in leading people astray. We need to turn away from them so they don't turn people away from Christ. Verse 19 says, For the report of your obedience has reached you all. I'm rejoicing over you. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And then he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So you, you've been good in being obedient. You, you have not succumbed to the teaching. Don't do it. Be wise. In the ways of good, innocent in the ways of evil. I don't know when exactly the God of peace crushed Satan under their feet. It may just be a way of expressing the certainty of the Lord's victory over that which is evil. But at one day he will crush Satan. So don't be on the side of Satan. <laughs> you know, I say all the time. Choose between what God is doing and something else. Always pick God's side in every argument. Pick God's side. I'm dealing with some stuff on marriage. And one of the things, you know, that I try to communicate to people is it doesn't matter what our culture says about marriage. It doesn't matter what our culture 
thinks about marriage, what new inventive things to come up with, because nothing is new. Everything our culture comes up with, it's always been done. Just find out where God stands on an issue and go be with God. Now, you may not... You may not be able to articulate it to other people because there's some very clever people out there, maybe where you work, in your neighborhood, family, who can articulate views that are opposed to God. If you don't exactly know what to say, don't let that bother you just because you don't know what to say. Just be sure you side with God. And if all you can say is, look, I'm just going to go with the Lord on this one. Sorry. They may get frustrated. They may call your names. So what? I mean, Too many churches and too many denominations are changing the message and mission of the gospel to fit the culture. Now, we change methods to fit the culture. We change ministries to fit the culture. You're sitting in that. This is evidence. We don't ever change the message. We don't ever change the mission. That never changes. We engage the culture so that the culture might hear Christ. We never engage the culture so that it might influence us away from Christ. You will never influence the culture if you become like the culture. The vast majority of churches and denominations who try to conform to the culture in order to reach the culture don't ever reach the culture. The culture doesn't come to their, they don't grow. They just sort of shrivel up and die. So our task is to always confront and engage the culture. But the main thing to do is be true to what God would have. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. They're my kinsmen. It doesn't necessarily mean they're blood relative, but it may mean that they come from the same area as Paul. Uh, Tertius, who writes the letter, greets you. He says he, that he used amanuensis, that secretaries were common. Normally the secretary would mention themselves so that, to give authenticity. Say, hey, you know, I'm writing this. Probably after verse 22, Paul may have wrote most of the other. Gaius, host to me, and so the whole church greets you. Now, if, you know, Gaius, uh, there at, at um, um, Corinth, where he wrote this, uh, took Paul in. He was the leader of the synagogue, took Paul in. Um, the whole church greets you, Erastus, who is the city treasurer, uh, Cordus, his brother. There were a lot of people. Remember, there, there were a lot of wealthy, well-connected people, a part, part of that early church. Sometimes we think they were all poor and, and country pumpkins. Lydia was wealthy, Gaius, powerful, um, Erastus, powerful, family members of the house of Herod. Were believers. There were a lot of people. Um, verse 25 says, and this is his doxology. Now, to him who is able to establish you, notice this, according to the guy gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So, notice, the establishment is according to, Paul says, my gospel, which means he is a partaker of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the preaching of Jesus. So, there is the importance laid upon the proclamation, the preaching of Jesus. According to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. The mystery is God revealing his plan of salvation. So all of this is focusing on Jesus. But now is made known to you, and by the scriptures of the prophets, which is the revelation of God. According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations, all the people groups, lead to obedience of faith. 
So notice he's, he's just focusing then on Jesus, the message of Jesus, the message about Jesus, which goes back to God's revelation. He's just saying everything he says is to be established by what God reveals. Scriptures. Jesus. Everything. That's what establishes. That's what matters. That's what moves us and motivates us. He says to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. And so to, to a culture in Rome that had many false gods, the true God is the wise God, the God who lives through Jesus, there is glory. And then Paul concludes this letter. And so in concluding this letter, this, this book of Paul's, and many people think outside of the Gospels, is the critical New Testament book, the critical book in all of Scripture, because it lays out the fundamental nature of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, as Paul lays out the basis of his doctrinal framework, we are reminded then throughout from the beginning to the very, very end, we are sinners rebelling against God who must turn to Jesus Christ through faith. It's made possible by his grace and only his grace. But in doing so, we will experience the redemptive nature that comes upon us to be justified in the eyes of God we are therefore expected to live that life in accordance to that obedience. Well, in Romans, we'll see if you have any. We have some time for questions that you may have, and uh, if you have any questions about this or any of the rest of the book, feel free to ask away. No questions about female deacons. Very good. Nobody wants to touch that subject. We'll see you later.